several articles, most recently uh, one about the first major test, uh, the UN Security General uh, in the Palestine from 1947 to 1949, uh, which appeared in the review. Uh, and this morning he's going to be talking about an aspect of the doctoral research uh, and entitled Layers of Force the Peace, UN Secretary General of the Cold War 46. Thank you. Um, Okay, so as John said, the topic for this talk and the topic for my presentation is the UN Secretary General. Um, so far at this conference, most of the speakers have talked about the UN Secretary General. So you had Edward Waterberg talking about Secretary General yesterday for those at the dinner, Mark Malik Brown talking about Secretary General. There's a campaign going on at the moment to get a better process for selecting the next Secretary General. And so presumably this means that people think this office is important. It matters who holds the office. There must be something about this person which means that he, so far only a he, um, can influence uh, events uh, in world politics. But if we look at the UN Charter and what it, the Charter says about Secretary General, the description it gives is that the Secretary General is the chief administrative officer of the United Nations. So clearly something has happened since 1945. The Secretary General today is much more than just administrative. And in my thesis, I asked the question, how did this become possible? How did, it, how, did it, sorry, how did we go from an administrative office to the very active political world the Secretary General plays today? The, the traditional answer, the way people have answered this question before, tends to focus quite a lot on Dark Hammarskjöld. He was the second Secretary General of the UN. He was in office during the 50s. Um, and he's been credited with almost single-handedly building the foundations for the office. In my dissertation, on the other hand, I examined the very first period of the UN's history, when Trigvili was in office. Oh, okay, okay, sorry. Um, and I'm look in this talk in particular, I'll be focusing on the Cold War, looking at what did Trigvili try to do in relation to the Cold War, and what precedents did they set for the office? What can we learn from his attempts to dealing with the Cold War for what the office of UN Secretary General would later become? When the UN first started operations in 1946, the assumption was that the great powers would continue to work together to maintain peace and security. But instead, very quickly, tensions erupted, what came, became known as the Cold War, and even during the first General Assembly and the first Security Council meetings in London, you had conflicts uh, between the two sides emerging. So already in January 1946, Iran complained against the presence of Soviet troops uh, on its territory. And to retaliate, the Soviet Union complained against the presence of British troops in Greece. This led to a very heated discussion in the Security Council with accusations and counter-accusations flying. And the question then becomes, what is the Secretary General to do in this? Clearly, the office he's just taken on is in an organization that's meant to be based on the unity of the great powers, and here they are fighting an open stage at the very first meeting of the council. Um, what Lee decided to do was to try and talk to the member states of the council behind the scenes, uh, encouraging them to work out the differences in private rather than airing their disagreements for all the world to see. He felt that it would be damaging for the prestige of the UN when all these disagreements were made public. Um, he also, later on, um, a few months into this, 
Fred offered a legal memorandum with his opinions on what would be the best way to deal with the Iranian case. He gave this to the Security Council. Um, and you see in this picture, um, this is from one of the meetings, discussions of the Iranian case at the Council, um, where he's seated next to the Chinese representative. So right from the very beginning, he takes on a very active role in the Security Council, taking an active interest in what is happening and how the Council are dealing with these problems. Then, of course, problems get worse as you move into 1947 and 1948. The Cold War hardens. Um, as Lee said, <coughs> there is a dramatic, gigantic battle going on between East and West. My motto is patience. My main task is to keep the machinery going. I should be happy, I should be content as long as I have Mr. Vyshinsky from the Soviet Union and Mr. Marshall of the United States sitting around the green table at Lake Success. And so he he sought in this period to try to do his best to bring the two sides together, keeping them at the UN. He sought to make sure that the UN would remain the center of negotiations and that all its member states would remain members of the UN. He took specific action in some of the cases. Um, in 1948, the Berlin blockade broke out, the very first tense Cold War conflict. Um, and in this situation, Lee tried to mediate. He offered to send some of his advisors um, to talk to two sides, trying to work out an agreement. Um, in this, you see um, an early example of how the Secretary General can use his special representatives to try and mediate. Um, in the Berlin blockade as well, he also issued a public appeal jointly with the President of the General Assembly. So the President of the General Assembly and the Security Council and the Secretary General issues an appeal to the great powers, urging them to come together and make an effort to solve these problems. Um, this is an early example of how the Secretary General is trying to build alliances with the people, trying to mobilize public opinion, even almost building an alliance between the Secretary General and the peoples of the world against the governments, urging them to do the right thing, as he saw it. <clears throat> Then, in 1950, he takes this a step further when he proposes an ambitious peace plan trying to solve the Cold War. He called this a 20-year program to win peace through the United Nations. Um, the first peace plan was first launched in a public speech in March 1950. He then went on to pr prepare a memorandum um, with 10 specific suggestions for how can you work to get peace through the United Nations. The, the first and specific, the only specific proposal he had was that the Security Council should start having periodic meetings. Um, in the Java, it actually calls for special meetings of the Council twice a year to have sort of a general review of the situation in the world. Um, and he felt that such a meeting would be a good um, opportunity for the states to come together, try and talk about what is the situation in the world, what can we do to overcome some of these difficulties. He also called for renewed efforts to negotiate agreement on the control of nuclear weapons, on general disarmament, on increased use of the special agencies uh, for economic and social development. He pointed to the importance of human rights, the importance of decolonization, of getting the states up to a level of equality um, with other states. And so many of these goals that he talked about then um, are quite recognizable today as some of the things the UN is still trying to achieve. Um, <clears throat> following, the following the public speech and the 
preparing preparation of this memorandum, he set out on a peace tour. He traveled to the capitals of the world to sell his ideas. He went to Washington DC, to London, to Paris, and to Moscow um, to talk to presidents and prime ministers and foreign ministers to try and urge them to come together and make a new effort uh, to solve their problems. Um, over this month when he was on the road, um, travel was slower in those days, um, he received hundreds of letters and flowers and well wishes from the general public, including, interestingly, a letter from Albert Einstein, the famous scientist, to say that Einstein thought he was doing a good job and good luck, um, keep doing it. Unfortunately, um, merely a month after his return, uh, you can see a picture of the return here, uh, Lee is just underneath the sign where it says, welcome home, Mr. Lee, UN South hails your peace mission, and he's receiving a large bouquet of flowers. Um, unfortunately, merely a month later, on the 25th of June, the Korean War broke out. This meant that many of these proposals will be very difficult to achieve as this conflict between East and West reached a new low point. Um, but in the Secretary General's opinion, this only seemed to underscore the importance of trying to use the United Nations to mediate and to consider <coughs> between the two, um, two sides, and also the importance of having common problems, sorry, common programs in non-political areas. This belief that if you get agreement on something, maybe that can influence, um, and you can get agreement on something else. Uh, so get agreement on something small and something simple first, and then you can move on to difficult problems. In relation to the Korean War, um, you see the Secretary General continuing to take a very strong and active decision. In his opinion, the North Korean invasion was a breach of the UN Charter, it was an act of aggression, and it was also an attack on the United Nations itself, because the United Nations had been actively involved in establishing the Republic of Korea, helping them hold the elections. And when the North Koreans then attack, symbolically they're attacking the UN and saying, we don't like your ideas, we don't like your plans. Um, at the first Security Council meeting on the 25th of June, the Secretary General was the first one to speak in the meeting, urging the member states to take strong action to stop the North Korean invasion and to aid the South Koreans. Although legal scholars say he didn't formally invoke Article 99, his actions were important in legitimizing the following UN response. Mm -hmm. um, over the next few days, the Secretary General would take it upon himself to send out telegrams to all the member states, asking them what aid can you give to South Korea. Um, he sought to coordinate the UN response. <clears throat> and you see the importance of this role later on in 1950, when his term was extended with three years by the General Assembly over strong Soviet Union opposition. The majority of the member states of the United Nations at this point considered Secretary General almost in a symbolic position. He had become the symbolic figurehead of the UN's policy in Korea. Um, he was the focal point of their efforts in Korea, and it was a show of unity to continue him in office against the Soviet opposition. Unfortunately, because of the Soviet boycott which followed, followed um, the next two years were not very easy for Lee, um, and he resigned in 1952 to try and get, give the UN a fresh start, hoping that the next Secretary General might be more useful um, with his initiatives. And so to conclude, what precedents can we see in this very first period of UN history? First of all, we see a very active Secretary General. 
In contrast to the League of Nations Secretary-General, uh, who had been much more administrative, he did play a limited role behind the scenes, but he famously he refused to talk to the press. Uh, he didn't want to be seen as a public, as having opinions. Lee, in contrast, stands up, gives speeches, says, this is my opinion, um, this is what we should be doing. He also plays a role as bridge builder, trying to bring the two sides together, seeking out unity among the members of the UN. Um, he's trying to keep the United Nations going. Uh, as long as you keep them talking, there's hope. Um, as long as we talk, there's no war breaking out. And ultimately, this is a question of the very survival of the United Nations. The United Nations was meant to be a universal organization, um, and if one side leaves, um, then that will be a failure for the UN. So it's a very important goal for the Secretary General to keep all the member states together, keep them talking. You also see the beginnings of the good officers function of using mediation, you sending representatives, trying to make proposals for how problems can be solved. Um, you see this alliance forming between the Secretary General and the peoples of the world. The Secretary General almost, as Lee called this, being a spokesman for world interest, representing the common views, uh, the common purpose. Um, and in extension of this, the Secretary General becomes a guardian of the UN Charter. He comes to represent the principles and values of the UN, um, and sort of symbolically stand for the UN as a whole, and also the UN meaning the peoples of the world, sometimes in conflict with the governments of the world. And so trying to push the governments um, to do what he feels is the right thing for the UN overall. If you look at all these efforts that Lee made in relation to the Cold War, um, on most of them he failed. Um, with the memorandum he gave on Iran, the Security Council didn't listen to his opinion and instead did something else. With Berlin, he was not the one to solve the conflict. That happened someplace else. The peace plan obviously didn't end the Cold War. Uh, arguably, the only place he did succeed was in Korea, where the council agreed with him that this was an act of aggression. But that came with a whole set of other problems. Um, but despite his failures in all the, these specific activities, the failure in terms of the states didn't do what he asked them to do, um, he did succeed in building the foundations for the Office of Secretary-General <coughs> in being so active and through doing all of these things, um, gaining acceptance from the states that the Secretary-General could be doing these things, and therefore building the foundations that later Secretary-General could do the same thing and possibly even be successful um, in doing it. And so in my dissertation, uh, I'm trying to say this story isn't just about Hammarskjöld. Um, there are things happening before that. Uh, some of the foundations, even in this first very difficult period, when Hammarskjöld took over, um, Lee welcomed him with saying, you're now taking on the most impossible job in the world. Um, and clearly, he did have a very difficult time in office. But regardless of that, he did succeed in building some foundations. Thanks.